Hello and welcome to What Were You Thinking? Today I am joined by Simon Hart, Secretary of State for Wales. Simon has been in Cabinet since 2019 and prior to becoming Secretary of State served as Cabinet Office Minister. He was elected to Parliament in 2010 after working as CEO for the Countryside Alliance. Simon and I talk about the union and the pressures it is facing. He shares what lessons he's learned from Scotland and what he and this government are doing to keep it as a central part of his historic union. We also discuss devolution, his route into Westminster and what it's like doing weekly cabinet meetings over Zoom. As in all episodes, I ask him what people, places and objects have impacted his thinking and I would love to know who, where and what have impacted your thinking as well. So let me know via Twitter, I'm at LauraRound or use the hashtag WWYT. This episode is supported by Graham Evans of Political Insight, a government affairs specialist. As we all know, tourism has been spectacularly hit around the world due to the pandemic, but if you are looking for a hidden gem this summer, I highly recommend you go to Wales. Not only are UK caravan and holiday parks a great destination for a staycation, You might be surprised to hear that UK caravan and holiday parks are huge contributors to the UK economy. And in 2018, they generated £9.3 billion in tourist expenditure and supported 170,000 full-time jobs. They are particularly important to Wales, so check them out this summer as they are COVID-secure self-catering holidays located in the most beautiful Welsh countryside, often in wonderful coastal areas. Simon, thank you so much for joining. What were you thinking? It's great to have you on the show uh, and taking out time of your no doubt very busy schedule as cabinet minister. You are in fact my first cabinet minister guest, so very exciting. Why don't we kick off, Simon, with finding out which person or multiple people have had a real impact on your thinking in life? Wow, it's a it's a really interesting um, question. I think, and because until the age of probably. 35 or even later, I think the idea of getting involved in politics was couldn't have been further from my mind. I, I, I don't think I was a member of a political party. I voted, uh, but I didn't. I, you know, I, I did, if you'd asked me then where I'd be now, I would never in a million years have said in this position. And that came about completely, really by a series of coincidences. And I, I, I think the moment I, I started to get angry, probably, as the sort of motivating factor, probably the wrong wrong answer, was sort of seeing uh, Blair, uh, you know, Blair's premiership, really. And I think probably what made angry was was quite how good he was at it. And and he, you know, he managed to, to my mind, he managed to sort of, it was a bit of a sort of snake charmer. And he managed to convince a lot of very sensible people to do a lot of very not very sensible things. And, and I, I have to say, I was quite impressed by that. And I happened to be at the uh, Labour Party conference, would you believe, um, when he made his sort of final speech, the, um, uh, you know, the one in which he famously said about uh, uh, Cherie not running off with the guy next door. And I just remember listening to the speech and he went into it with a lot of enemies in the room and a lot of enemies in the party and everything possible, you know, everything to lose. And sort of 45 minutes later, he came out of it. Uh, sort of completely having restored his um, his sort of leadership credentials. And I think there were people coming out of the auditorium saying, why are we getting rid of this guy? He's actually really rather good. And I remember thinking, yeah, he, he, he's quite a genius. And I disagreed with pretty well everything he stood for, but 
he was unquestionably an impressive political leader. And I, I just remember thinking um, uh, that was the moment, I think, when I thought, well, you know, maybe uh, time has stopped, come to stop complaining and actually to uh, step into this murky world and, and see what, See what I can um, see. What so I can make of it. So, how did you step into the murky world? What what is what was the journey of that? I uh, I just remember after the two thousand and five election, I'd been involved in a very uh, yeah. I, I sort of did my did my duty locally and and supported uh, you know the, the election campaigns both in the um, assembly as it was here, but also for for general elections too. And in two thousand and five, the, the Labour majority here uh, was coming down and down and down. And by 2005, it had got to a sort of, to a, you know, a winnable margin. And uh, so I, at, at that stage, I just remember talking to one or two people in the local association about whether the time was right, you know, whether I could put my name forward for, for what would have been the two, 2010 election at that stage. And that's when I actually got sort of formally involved and, and went through that uh, Process and I think I was selected then in 2007 or 2008 for the 2010 uh, election. I, I did have a condition though, which was I, and there were two reasons for this one was sort of selfish, one was less so. The selfish sort of condition was that I would only stand in the constituency in which I lived and worked and my fam- family came from and all that. Uh, hang on. Sorry, thing. And um, uh, uh, and there the, the was a selfish reason for that, which was uh, therefore I didn't have to sort of you know, flog around the whole of the UK, um, <clears throat> annoying people. And uh, the, 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 the more serious reason was, you know, I felt quite strongly at the time that local candidates had an edge, had an advantage, um, had a good, you know, had a good story to tell. I think people were hacked off with politics at the time probably <laughs> always have been still are but I think there was greater sympathy for somebody they saw as uh, having local credibility and local experience and local connections and I thought that was possibly going to be the factor which enabled us to take a seat which had been Labour for a long long time off them and return it to um, uh, Conservative hands. No, I don't actually know if any of that it, it, it came true, so to speak, but I did, I, I did win it in 2010. But whether I won it because of that or won it because of the na- because of David Cameron of the, na- of the National Swing, of, you know, sophologists will tell you. But that's that's how I ended up uh, finding myself in this sort of strange. And I, I um, and I remember also thinking, well, I'll do two four year terms, you know, to fight two elections. I'll do two four year terms, and that'll be fine. Then I'll go off and do something else. Well, the um, first thing that happened, of course, we passed the Fixed Term Parliaments uh, Act, so that puts pay to that. And then, uh, you know, nearly 12 years and four general elections later, you know, stuff changed. And um, uh, so it, it, none of the plans really worked properly. So what did change then? Uh, what to make me um, mm. hang on in there? Yeah. Well, I, I, I <laughs> yeah, quite. Good question. I, I think that... Um, the frequent, I, th- I think that first term, 2010 to 2015, was relatively normal. And 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 I thought, well, I, I, I definitely, you know, I, I wanted to do a second term. You know, the, we were 
um, you know, the, the coalition years had felt slightly constrained, constraining or constrained. So we, we thought there was a, an opportunity to, you know, to get over the, get, to get a proper majority in 2015. So I think there was a feeling that actually we were only then about to start um, the programme that we'd attempted to start back in 2010. Uh, and then, of course, you know, elections came around you know, every other year. So there wasn't really even almost time to consider anything else uh, because we'd come out yeah. on one election, you were into another. Then, you know, Brexit was uh, Brexit was the big thing. Um, and uh, it just became a roller coaster and it became, uh, uh, it became, uh, it, you know, I, I don't think it's uh, anything to be ashamed of, but it came a fascinating period of time to be in, you know, to be on the field of play. And uh, so the idea that you sort of walk away at that moment, just when there were so many different, really big life-changing um, uh, issues uh, around, was, you know, I wasn't going to miss that for the world. So uh, very quickly, that sort of rather sort of pompous plan I had on day one, uh, it was torn up. And um, I thought, actually, this is, a, this is a really interesting and meaningful and potentially rewarding uh, sort of career, if you can call it that, um, to be in well yeah I think we we certainly can call it a career because also I mean without breaking too many confidences I recall years ago you mentioning you're looking very worried now <laughs> yeah I am it's a, it's a nightmare thing for people to say oh, yeah. I, know. Um, I remember you saying what was it exactly I think you were asked I asked you wouldn't you be tempted to, to become a minister you said well you know I've been asked by the whips whether I'd be interested but to be honest not 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 so sure that that's for me and then all of a sudden two years later things change I mean the the context change and everything you just described obviously which totally makes sense and um I remember you becoming minister in the cabinet office was that your first ministerial yeah, yeah. role yeah uh which is an amazing amazing role and obviously now you're a member of a cabinet so I think career what, what, is a bit of an understatement yeah, what, what went wrong <laughs> what went wrong <laughs> yeah I, I i that recollection is 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 accurate um, i'm sort of sorry to say in a way um and uh, yeah i did i mean those early years i don't forget a thing simon <laughs> yeah and um i uh I, I i i think by the way my my decision at the time was right uh and i think as a consequence of not sort of leaping on the hamster wheel on day one, um, it has given, I think in my case, it's not the same for everybody, but in my case, that's uh, given me a little bit more objectivity and perspective about a lot of the things which face us today. Uh, and, you know, I did, I had uh, other things that I wanted to do. I didn't necessarily think that uh, it was was going to be the sort of thing I'd be, I was more worried about whether I would be good at it, actually. And I, I thought in those early days, I just didn't think that I was necessarily going to have the uh, the, the 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 experience under my belt to 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 make it work. Now, I, I who knows uh, whether that was the right judgment to take. But I um, but I feel that having, as you rightly said, the circumstances changed. The uh, world was changing at a pace. The cabinet of, office offer came along, which was interesting and timely. And mm. and then, of course, uh, again, you know, another election, and then a vacancy in in the Wales office. And then, so, you know, I I I am absolutely sure that if I hadn't 
done the hard yards on the sort of back benches early on that I, yeah, I probably would have coped, but I think I'd probably cope slightly better from yeah. having done it that way around. Uh, it's difficult because, you know, politics isn't like a normal career where you have sort of, you know, performance, performance related reviews and thank goodness um, for performance related reviews. But um, for me, and just where, 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 where I was in my sort of, you know, working life that worked that seemed to seem to work at it well that's firstly that is very honest of you and secondly I think that's actually a really good approach and and because you know I think there is a lot to say for um having that experience for backbenches and understanding the landscape and and how it all works before delving in too quickly I'm sure that counts for an awful lot and I mean it's it's really I know it's tempting and I know uh you know, there are always rumours swirling around uh, Westminster about, uh, you know, the, the people's, um, you know, shameless, shameless uh, ambition. And I think that's great. I mean, I don't have any necessary problem with that. But I mean, I, I certainly think when I, I just look back at my professional life, I certainly think that uh, even though when I was 25, I was probably, you know, cocky enough to think that I could have done it. Looking back now, I can absolutely be 150% certain that at 25, I would not have been able to do it or certainly not to be able to do it justice and to do it properly because, you know, you are faced with uh, the day-to-day tasks of actually having people uh, you, you have to employ. So you have to have a relationship with employees for a start. Not everybody's very good at doing that at 25. They're normally better at mm. doing it when they're 45. Um, and, and so I think, you know, just that, just, just that you know, the, the team you have in your office, in your constituency, or your volunteers in your constituency, or your staff in your Westminster office, um, that in itself is you're running a little business. You're running a, a micro business, and you need to know how to do that fairly and reasonably and decently. And as I think, you know, age, and if you've done a few jobs before, I've, you know, I've been, I've been an employer and an employee in my, in my, in my former life, and that helps a lot. Really helps. A lot. But also the judgments. You know, it's, you know, the 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 the, the experiences we have as constituency MPs, as as you, as you know, are often quite traumatic. And they're often involved in contact with families or businesses who have run out of options, who are facing the worst challenges anybody could possibly imagine. Either the business that they've built up over generations in which they've treated, you know, which has been their thing, their life's work, is teetering on the edge and about to go under. And they want you to come to right to the rescue. Or families, and particularly, I think that health is a, is a particular area, Sort of very you know opposite at the moment, where uh, and I do remember one particular you know constituency occasion where there was uh, a guy who had been declined um, emergency surgery for cancer in the UK in Wales, um, and but had also been declined the option of getting the treatment he needed in Germany, where uh, the treatment was available. Um, and uh, he he felt at any rate, and his GP agreed that he was um, this was a you know this put him in the, into the terminal category, and that's a that, that you know being able to to sit in somebody's house and have that conversation with their family is not necessarily something that everybody can simply just adapt to. And I think a little bit for me, I'm not saying for other, other people do it brilliantly when they're younger, um, I think I probably wouldn't have been in that category. I think I needed to be 
you know, 40 plus before I was probably going to be able to handle that situation properly. It ended well, by the way, we, we, we solved the case and he got his treatment and, you know, it, the story had a, uh, I hope a happy thing. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. No, that's, those are the great stories of politics that are often, you know, you don't, you don't hear or don't make the news, obviously, but what's, uh, I think every, every MP I, I've spoken to, you know, if you to ask them what is the most impactful part of their job, it's often those personal, highly personal stories. Yeah, and it, 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 it always annoys me. Um, and, you know, I sort of don't mind it admitting it always annoys me that people say, oh, you know, troubles MPs to say, you know, they're so out of touch. Yeah. Um, and um, I always think, actually, I, saw, I think it's the other way around. I mean, I, a normal week for all of us, it's not a party thing, for all of us, puts us in touch with, uh, you know, uh, NHS frontline workers, with the armed forces, with private enterprise, with uh, uh, the elderly, with the young, with schools, with, um, uh, you know, you name it, you name a category, the charitable sector, you know, and it's all, you're meeting people either in moments of great joy when they're just opening a new factory or they're just got a new grant from the government to do something, or as I say, when, the world stopped and uh, they're facing the biggest challenge they've ever faced in their lives. And, and actually, so at the end of any week, you know, how many, how many people can say that they've had all that contact? And also, by the way, you know, possibly had a chat with the prime minister while you're at it, you know, <laughs> so it's very, very varied. Yeah. And I know it looks from the outside, like it's an incredibly sort of rarefied and, uh, and, and privileged life, it, which it is. And I don't, you know, I don't think it's any point denying that either. Uh, but but also it does have it does give you an uh, an insight into every possible element of what's going on in your community in a way that I, I've never found anything else which goes close to it. Mm. So looking at your time as a politician, but also potentially before, clearly, you know, there are many, many walks of life that you've encountered, but also many places you will have visited. Are there any places that stand out to you that you think have really, you know, in one way or another left a mark? Oh, yeah. I mean, I uh, when I was doing the, the there's a really good scheme, which you have heard of in, in Parliament called the Armed Forces Parliamentary Scheme, which takes uh, MPs um, into uh, c- close contact with our armed forces, wherever they happen to be in the world. Uh, really good scheme, really uh, enables you to you know, sort of get the other side of a, an MOD PowerPoint presentation and actually see what really is going on. And <laughs> and uh, I remember we went to um, uh, uh, um, Camp Bastion in Afghanistan during the Afghan conflict. And uh, um, we uh, are just talking to um, some Royal Engineers at the time. And uh, we were saying, you know, what would make a, what would, what would be the single thing which would make a big difference to your life in Afghanistan? And we thought they'd say more helicopters, more land drivers, more whatever, more, more kit. And actually they said, um, a bit like lots of people in the UK, they said, can we have some decent Wi-Fi? Um, because actually the one thing would make a big difference to us and our families is to be able to have half an hour on, on you know, Skype or um, yeah. FaceTime, as it was then, at the end of a week, and, and not it drop out after 15 seconds. And I just thought, what a, what, what a, simple, what a simple thing that would have been to fix, you would, you would imagine. So, yeah, moments like that, and we went, um, probably the best trip I went on, cross-party trip, this was to the, um, to the Falklands with, um, uh, uh, with um, the Armed Forces uh, group as well, and a great bunch of people fairly early on, and did, we didn't know each other particularly well, and, and, uh, but, you know, you sort of do know, you get to know people quite well when you're sort of, uh, you know, 
I, I, being winched onto the deck of HMS York in the South Atlantic, where people sort of a whole lot of rather unfit middle-aged politicians, um, and and that was that was fascinating, and you know you you, you just you know learn things that you wouldn't learn in any other context, and um, I think also funny enough going to. Patagonia with the Welsh Affairs Select Committee. You might wonder how that ever came about. But um, David T.C. Davis worked his magic and got us over there um, because it's the second, uh, or it, it is a strong Welsh community in Patagonia um, historically and a great uh, uh, affection for and attachment to the Welsh language. And it was, um, uh, it was just fascinating seeing Welsh culture being played out in, in Patagonia and schools singing their own national anthem and the Welsh national anthem at assembly every morning. And, um, and uh, there were lots of sort of, there was lots of evidence on the, on the sort of, on the pupil list of the, of, um, there were lots of sort of Eduardo Joneses and, uh, and people who had obviously had sort of, um, had great historical overlap. And that was quite, I think that, you know, teaches you to open your eyes a bit and, and there were countless, there were lots of um, you know, pre-COVID of course and lots of uh, opportunities for that kind of thing and they do have a lasting impact and again we always fight against the fact that sometimes the, the press's attitude is oh, a bunch of MPs on another freebie um, <clears throat> and and yet there really is value there really is value I mean you know we're, we, we purport to be a, a, a global a global nation and we want to be you know, we want to understand how the world works and, and how our, you know, the sort of challenges our armed forces face and this sort of stuff. And, and so sometimes actually it is important to, you know, get in a plane or whatever it might be and go and actually see it firsthand. We can't do it all on Zoom. Yeah. Well, I've noticed there's been a few um, attempts in, uh, to do country visits via Zoom, which of course, which is great, you know, it's, it's because of, no there's no alternatives during covid it's a very admirable thing and actually i think they did it quite well but uh doesn't beat seeing the real the real thing in in real life for sure well you know having done it both now um you know zoom has been a you know it's been a it's been a useful way of keeping the you know keeping the systems ticking over but it isn't a permanent replacement for this kind of stuff and a lot and a relationship with a lot of our uh, most important allies across the world is is very much on trust very much on personal relationships very much on a handshake uh, or a or a you know a, a, a formal occasion or something like that you, you can't replicate that electronically um, it'll be brilliant I mean you know say it's been brilliant it's kept the whole place functioning but it's not the permanent solution so Simon, it's now been a year and a half since you became Secretary of State for Wales, and it's been a time when the union has been at its greatest risk, arguably, um, due to the Scotland situation. What impact do you think that this this hyper-separatism talk is having on Wales? Well, I, uh, you know, I won't deny that, you know, we, we keep a really close eye on national mood as far as that's concerned and and the most recent test of that was 10 days ago in a um in the senate elections here in wales and and i think the reassuring thing about that was that three out of four voters opted for unionist parties uh, and that the separatist offer which was on the menu was rejected you know more 
uh, I thought uh, more emphatically than it was last time, back in 2016. So, uh, in the, and you know, Ply Cymru is the vehicle by which separatism would be achieved, and they did slightly worse, uh, in my book anyway, slightly worse than they did last time around. So it appears from that that little progress uh, had been made and there is little appetite for separatism uh, here in Wales. There's plenty of appetite for national identity and patriotism, um, but the idea that separatism is the only way of delivering that is, is clearly not a view taken by I'll say three out of four voters um, who voted in those elections. So, um, but that said, I think that we need to, I I expect if we made a a mistake over the generations of the way in which we've approached the union is to look at it just purely as a financial arrangement. I think it's much more, it's much more nuanced than that. It's much more about identity and it's about culture and history and a whole range of other uh, sort of uh, interlocking issues. And I think just deploying the argument, well, we wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't be able to afford to be on our own. is a slightly crude and not entirely accurate um, assessment of the sort of union position. So we have to, we have to constantly respect the fact there is an argument to be won and keep making it. So what lessons are you learning from Scotland or, you know, and applying to Wales to keep it as well, a central part? Uh, we, well, we are where Scotland was about 15 years ago. So if you look at the sort of, if you look at the timeline, I think we have an opportunity in Wales to approach uh, the union challenge in a slightly different way. Um, and as I say, I think that's actually about uh, making sure that the arguments we make are not to, not to try and, not trying to, and I don't think anybody set out to do this, but it's how it sort of panned out. Uh, I think in some ways the union argument is that you can either be a union that has developed into, you can either be a unionist or a, or a patriot, but you can't be both. I think that's completely wrong. Uh, and it's demonstrably wrong in Wales. Um, and the nation has reached the same view in only the last few days. So, uh, uh, and, and, and I think... The unions almost become like a political party, and it shouldn't be. Everybody should be able to embrace or reject the union if that's what they want. And all, all I've been trying to achieve, and what I want to continue trying to achieve, is is reminding people the union is there as a uh, uh, as a as a force for good. It's not something people have to sign up to. You don't have to put a flag outside your house. You don't have to join a political party. You don't have to vote in a particular way. But the union is there. It's there when you need it. It's an emergency comfort blanket when times get tough. And, you know, what better example have we had, I, I think, in the last, you know, goodness knows how many years than the COVID response, where the union has come to the rescue with the vaccination programme and the union has come to the rescue with the financial interventions which have been made, which would, in all honesty, never have been possible at the scale that they have been available had we been a separate country. Uh, and, you know, in Wales, we have a rather different border with England than Scotland does with England. It's a much more porous border, it's a longer border. It's got a much, much denser um, population uh, adjacent to the border and, and a much more fluid one. So if you look at places like Deeside in North Wales, Wrexham, right way down Office Dyke to sort of Herefordshire and Monmouthshire, those border counties, there's a vast amount of um, traffic going one way or the other in a normal working day. And so 
there is a, it's a very different dynamic and and so we and i think the union recognizes that so I, I, I just don't want people to feel that it's an either or choice that they're being faced with it's there for when times get tough and it's also there as a as an uh, 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 as a means of ensuring our sort of jobs and prosperity without it being necessarily um uh, something as i say people have to sort of sign up to if they don't feel completely comfortable with that mm. and so on devolution do you think that is working well <laughs> i think devolution i mean the the the, the, the textbook answer is that devolution can work and should work and in some cases does work but it doesn't always work and and i think that the way i what i've learned about devolution in the last uh 18 months is that for some people devolution has been interpreted as simply transferring power from westminster to cardiff uh and i don't think that is devolution either and I think if we're honest with ourselves about devolution, it's about saying, right, where, where, is the, where are decisions made? Um, uh, what is the closest point at which decisions are made to the communities in which they are, um, uh, the community which they affect? And that is unquestionably at local level. So I, I've been quite keen to advance the idea that if we're true to our, if we want to apply the dictionary definition of devolution, that doesn't stop in Cardiff. Uh, it stops with local authorities and local decision makers. And so what we should be doing, and I've been intrigued with how resistant to this uh, Ply Cymru and our colleagues in Cardiff are, <clears throat> because, of course, it, it's, um, it challenges them just as much as it challenges me. Uh, if we're true to ourselves about devolution, we should be involving local stakeholders and local authorities in a way that we haven't before. Now, we started to do that with things like levelling up fund and, and uh, some of the stuff which was announced in the budget. But of course, uh, you know, there was I thinking, well, what's not to like about this? We're actually making sure that every community in Wales gets a bite of this big cherry. And the first people out of the block to cry foul were Welsh government. I was thinking, hang on a minute, you're meant to be in favour this is about getting money and jobs and prosperity into Wales and yet you know and then that's when the penny dropped with me slightly is actually they want to be overly political on this but they it just the penny dropped that they were uh, more concerned with with power than devolution I think the two things are very different uh, and so uh, I I'm I don't we don't have the all the all the solutions in Westminster. I don't think they have all the solutions in Cardiff. That's why we want to involve a wider group of um, people who've got every bit as intimate relationship with their local community as we have. And that's why we want MPs to be involved and, and uh, Senate members. And so um, we've got a little way to go on that. But devolution, as I say, it's not just about putting a different postcode on the same problem and hoping it'll go away. Um, that's, not, mm-hmm. that's not devolution at all. So then just, uh, just uh, the other question I had is, you know, it's been a year and a half now. What would you say your personal highlights have been uh, since since starting that job? Well, I mean, it's been it's been dominated, of course, uh, by COVID. There hasn't been a, this has not been a normal uh, mm. period for anybody in in government. And of course, you know, normally our role is uh, uh, you know out and about. It's cutting ribbons. It's doing all those kind of things, which uh, uh, we're we're probably best known for. In, in some respects, and of course, hardly any of that's been going on. So it's been a very different sort of year. Uh, I, I, I think 
politicians are often asked, you, well, what's your greatest achievement? It's a sort of nightmare question. It's very hard to put your finger on a single thing which you can claim is absolutely yours and would not have happened if it hadn't been for your intervention. In many cases, I think what we all do is, you know, we all contribute to a sort of, you know, small twist of the dial, um, which all adds up to a slightly bigger twist on the dial. So if you combine the efforts of everybody, you actually get... But, but having said that, I think there have been a few things in the last year which would not have happened without Wales Office intervention. I think we were very, you know, we were very pleased that we were able to uh, get uh, the support necessary. The steel company in Cardiff called Celsa employ about six to eight hundred people. Um, they run a good business, a very environmentally uh, sympathetic business, Green Steel, and uh, the great bunch of people, and they. Uh, they were hit by COVID. Um, that was, uh, you know, their business model was fine. They were they were capable of being uh, sustainable, uh, but COVID was about to pull the rug out from under their feet. And, and as a combination of the treasury intervention early on, and I, I would like to think what we were able to do, uh, and um, and the way we were able to. To, to join up the dots, that we were able to get a financial package for Celsa, which, which saved those jobs at the beginning of COVID. And I think that was the one small example of uh, something we can say that would not have happened without us. I think the recent announcement in the budget uh, by Rishi around something called the Global Centre of Rail Excellence, not, not exactly a catchy name, but um, uh, up in uh, uh, just north of uh, Astragunlice at the top, top of the uh, valleys, that was a um, uh, 30 million pound uh, investment. Now, again, may not sound like much, but it is on the site of, a, uh, of an old coal mine, uh, you know, very I iconic as far as Wales is concerned. And uh, the creation of new job, very different industry, very new jobs, very cutting edge, very global. Uh, and that, and I talked to Kwasi about that, because that required Bayes, Treasury, number 10, the Wales office, um, the whole everybody you can think of but it had to happen and we were at one stage I think we were in danger of just talking about it forever uh, and and I remember just having this conversation with Kwasi uh, who's really good at getting stuff done and just saying look we have to do this we just have to you know we we we're you know we, we've done all the talking there's nothing else to do other than we have to now make a decision he completely agreed and there was a this was in the dying moments up to the um, up to the budget. And then it came up in the budget, brilliant green light, we're off. And it, it proved to me that actually you have to be belligerent and stubborn and slightly annoying yeah. to get, get your stuff done. Um, but it also, you know, political will is often the one thing in all of this, which is lots of, there's lots of ambition, but sometimes you just have to have political get it done. And there are, so there are lots of examples like that, which, and they're quite small in many respects, but they all add up to something bigger. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I just remember thinking that would not have happened without yeah. the Wales office. And so if there's a few jobs on the back of that and a community can uh, have a sort of new lease of life, then job done. Absolutely. So following COVID and the lockdown and not being able to travel abroad, um, I'm assuming Wales is quite a hot, uh, popular destination for for vacations. Is that is that right? And, yeah, I mean, and what it, would you it, say it really, to people at home thinking, what should I do this summer? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you come to Wales. So obviously, it's my obvious answer. But actually, it is. It's really encouraging that 
uh, it, it's 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 absolutely um, uh, booked up. Of having asked people to come, it's booked up, you know, for quite a long time ahead. Everybody's feeling quite buoyant. Everybody's obviously a bit nervous if, you know, what happens if there's another surge of COVID or or some further travel restrictions. But and and I think the the thing which is really nice about this is we're introducing people to the area who've never been before. Um, and uh, uh, one uh, there was one um, lobby journalist who uh, actually decided to come on holiday with his kids to uh, West Wales earlier on, uh, just just recently. And um, and I think as a result of that, we probably weaned him off Cornwall or Spain, possibly for good. Um, and uh, which makes me very happy because I think we're enabling people to discover that you know within four hours of London you can find uh, everything that you possibly want for your family holiday and more. Uh, and I know everybody sort of tends to, to historically slightly headed to the West Country, but we're we're, we're being able to showcase uh, the coast in Wales we're, and you know some undiscovered gems. Uh, and of course, uh, you know people forget that we've we've got quite a lot of variety in Wales. So if you want to go, you know, into the mountains, you've got you know Mid Wales and Snowdonia and, uh, uh, and places like that. If you want, you know, sort of coastal experiences, whether it's just wandering the coast path or you're getting on a on a on a kayak or something, we've got that too. So there is a bit of everything. I've got more beaches in my constituency, I think, than any other MP. Mm-hmm. Other than possibly um, Angus Brendan McNeil in, McNeil in the Outer Hebrides, but I'm 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 I think I'm well up into the thirties, uh, and so uh, uh, you know people Amazing. people uh, people ask me whether I whether I find uh, the travel tedious from London to West Wales, but you know when you've got thirty beaches to choose from, you know it sort of softens the blow a bit. Well, just <clears throat> looking at the pictures behind you, Simon, they are oh, yeah. pictures of two of the beaches two of the 30 beaches you yeah. mentioned and it looks very inviting indeed yeah <laughs> seven miles seven miles of beach of pendine and uh t- tenby just behind Amazing. me which is uh, uh a um with a well-known well-known you know everybody's been to tenby but it's it's time they came back i think too <laughs> amazing so one of the things i wondered um one of the effects of covid that i've been sort of wondering about is what it's like doing cabinet meetings on Zoom. <laughs> How different is it? <clears throat> well, it is. We've done three. I mean, we obviously we we, we started in the um, you know at the beginning of the pandemic. We were in the normal cabinet room, and I, I and I remember the meeting when there was a general view that this, this would be the last time we did it for some time. Uh, I don't think any of us thought that it would be you know a, a year or more before we return we haven't done yet and we spent a bit of time in the Locarno suite in the foreign office which was a vast barn of a, of a room which was but we could keep our sort of two meters apart it was it wasn't very personal but it was doable and the rest of the time's been on zoom and um and all of the joys that that brings um but it's uh, it's worked okay it's worked okay. We all now know how each other's houses are decorated, and oh, yeah. uh, you know we've got. We a, all we've do got, now. Yeah, we indeed we do. So we know <laughs> what everybody reads and what everybody's art collection looks like, or what their 
picture choice and all this sort of stuff. And um, so there's quite a lot of um, there's there's quite a lot of uh, you know smirking goes on about uh, um, uh, you know as I say people's dress sense and that kind of stuff when we've had weekend you know weekend zooms which have been quite a regular feature of the uh, of the pandemic. It's uh, that there's been a sort of light-hearted element if that if that's um, not totally inappropriate during um, you know t- during the more serious moments. But actually, it you know Boris has been able to you know, undertake the business in a um, in a professional way. And it actually does work. It works OK. Um, but as I said at the beginning, I think all of us yearn to get back in the room uh, together and to have those, uh, you know, conversations at the coffee machine, um, you know, before and after, which can sometimes be, you know, almost the most revealing parts of our of our of our work. Um, and um, but it's been, uh, you know, I say to people often when they ask me for my sort of recollections about the last year or so, um, and people are always fascinated in Boris as Prime Minister, Boris as the um, as the leader of the party in that. But I can tell you this with absolute certainty, that one thing you do need in any leader in any time of crisis is a sense of optimism and hope. And uh, the one, though you can say many things about Boris, uh, and I hope the history books will actually one day recall the sort of the accurate version. But the one thing I can say, and I didn't know it particularly well before I did this job, by the way, that uh, he is never without optimism and hope. That is an incredibly important part of leadership, incredibly important part, because uh, you know the, the, it's been extremely difficult the last year. There have been um, dilemmas and and, and uh, scenarios and decision-making obligations, which nobody would relish. And we, we made the decisions we did at the time that we did with the information that we had. And I've no doubt when the recently announced inquiry gets into gear, there will be, they will all be explored. But the thing which struck me probably more than anything else is that Boris has never lost hope. He's never lost that sense of optimism on hope that there will be a way in which we can navigate our way out of this crisis, either through the vaccines or and with the support of the, uh, you know, the financial assistance. And, and as I said, I had to pinpoint one thing, which has been uh, evident in every one of those cabinet meetings, whenever they've occurred and whatever form they've occurred, is that there has always been a sense of hope, not blind hope, not blind optimism, but genuine, if we do this, then uh, we will be able to reach these milestones by a certain time. We'll be able to restore order to the economy. We'll be able to, you know, protect the NHS, whatever the slogan of the time was. Um, and I don't think there were many people that I can think of who would have been able to uh, impart that sense of optimism. And we know it's his, it's his thing, isn't it? It's what he's famous for. Um, and that sort of ebullience and, and sense of positivity. And um, I say, not knowing the guy particularly well before I took this job on, I think that was something that I very quickly came to recognise and which epitomised, you know, cabinet meetings. Um, We had to go, we were, you know, there were meetings at 11 o'clock at night, there were meetings on Sunday mornings, there were meetings at weird times, day and night. And at every time, you know, he was positive, right, and quite, and decisive by the direction in which we were going. I say, we will, you know, we'll learn a lot from the inquiry, mm. um, but I hope we, I hope that's recorded too. That's really interesting. That's a great insight. <clears throat> and so what would you say 
are one of the more bizarre experiences that you've encountered as a politician. Of, I mean, I'm sure there are many the thick of it moments, as like de- I like to describe them. But which ones can you share? Well, the, the worrying thing is that there's sort of there's sort of thick of it moments every day. <laughs> they're not they're not particularly unique experiences. Um, and uh, for people who are old enough to remember, yes, Minister, uh, that that um, you know, I, I um, uh, there's a there's a remarkable. Uh, similarity to almost every scenario that was included in that se- those series as, as, as well. Uh, that's not to paint an, a, a negative picture; it's just the way it is, and uh, shows how brilliantly they were written when when in the, uh, in their time. In fact, are there any specific moments when? Um, I mean, we find ourselves in these sort of curious uh, positions. The worrying thing is, is almost all of them uh, are uh, not. Able to, shared, exactly. able to be shared publicly um, uh, because um, uh, they, they're they just too good to be true. Or, <laughs> Can or you too... describe it without revealing names? <laughs> um, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely can't. Um, or it, it would be impossible. It's like, well, yeah, it would be impossible to... Uh, to do so, um, but I mean, they're, they're not all about, you know, uh, impropriety, by the way, they're just often, you know, quite, they're quite circum, they're quite sort of, the circumstances are just quite uh, uh, weird. Now, I mean, it's it's sort of, uh, you know, things like um, Wi-Fi and Cobra meetings breaking down and that sort of stuff, it's sort of stuff that you you think, I remember actually, fun enough, being, um, being um, going to a, a screening of the thick of it, um, Talk about things we we get privileged to. We went the screen and think of it, and Amano Nucci was giving the speech at the beginning of the thing, and say, and somebody asked him why they weren't writing any more, and he said because reality has overtaken um, fiction. He said, you know, we can't. Every time we come up with an idea, we discover it's actually already happened in government, and therefore, you know, it doesn't. You know, we we we're sort of pushing. <laughs> we've run out of we've run out of satire. Yeah, <laughs> which is quite a sort of worrying one of the, thing. One of the memories that's just randomly popped up in my mind is um, is how um, this was the general election when Theresa May, the disastrous general election for Theresa yeah. May. This was two days before, and uh, I was helping out on uh, on a visit, and um, the senior spare team from Number Ten was supposed to be, or, or some senior people on the campaign trail were meant to come over and they were very delayed and the reason was because there was a trampoline on the rail track <laughs> you just think <laughs> what on earth <laughs> it's so random and it just stalls everything anyway that's not yeah and i mean one, but... you, there are you know the the number of occasions where you know the sort of famous scene in, in think of it where there's sort of three people crammed at the back of an uncomfortable car all on mobile phones all trying to deal with some crisis um uh it, uh, and uh, some sort of grumpy minister in the middle of it who'd actually much rather be somewhere else. Have you ever had to Have you ever had to unannounce an announcement? <laughs> no, but I do remember a colleague who actually was uh, had to uh, was actually on the Today program announcing government policy when the policy changed and mm-hmm. seamlessly going seamlessly going from being in favor of one policy to another or are you turning in the middle of an interview without missing a beat wow. uh, and um, he's now in the house of lords so it does pay off <laughs> amazing amazing so going to the last uh, the final question on object have you 
thought of an object that you think is well i i it, there's i mean I, I in my in, in the office where i'm sat at the moment there is various sort of uh uh you know um little items of interest which i've collected over the years and they may be uh you know you been to visit a local charity and they've given you a, a, a plaque with your name on or there's a news clipping I'm just looking around here or there's a you know Christmas card from David and Samantha uh, you know there's sort of stuff on the there's stuff on the wall all of which um, all of which mean a bit um, and, uh, and there's one in, there's you know the the photographs of the you did which are of interest to us and us alone um, there's photographs of uh the um, you know your when you you know you make your acceptance speech on the, the day you're first elected, and I just remember I, that was quite a big deal because again you know, none of it you no know, training for this kind of nobody says what will happen and you you know and there I was in a in a in an aircraft hangar in um, in Haverford West and you know I just won the election and some random bloke comes up and gives me a brown envelope as I get off the podium, um, and in that brown envelope was your sort of right this is what happens next. Um, and uh, uh, not a necessarily very accurate prediction of what happens next, by the way, but it was, you know, you turn up on Monday and you go to this door and they'll give you a pass or whatever, whatever it was. And, um, and, I, and I think that uh, I kept, I've kept that and I kept the envelope. Yeah. And just I thought because it just, it just, it's a, it, you know, it's almost something for the kids in a way. Tasty. And, um, and I, I think the other object, which, which sort of is a it's not, probably not a very good one, but um, I do think every time you take your sort of parliamentary pass with your little photograph and your little security code out of your pocket, it does sort of just have to remind you, you have to ground yourself and just remind yourself every time you, you know, as in my case, walk over Westminster Bridge to, to work. Um, the circumstances in which you were in, and not only to take them seriously, but also to enjoy them, actually, because, you know, I'm first and possibly last person in my family ever to go anywhere near politics as a career. And it's, it is easy to get a bit sort of blasé about it. And I think that would, that's a huge mistake. I think it's, you know, we, 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 we have to take the thing seriously um, and also see that um, some of the absurdities of it at the same time and the sort of, you know, some of the little bits and pieces I've got lying around this this room which I'm not going to show you because they you know there's a picture on the wall of um uh of me um uh and Damien Green uh at Steve Baker quite an unusual lineup and 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 um, when when we were trying to stitch together some compromise over Brexit and things like that mm-hmm. little moments like that yeah. uh are, are just um fantastic you know and I, I just want to keep them here and they'll all sit in a box and you know one day my grandchildren might wonder what the hell I did with my life and they'll be able to find they'll be able to find it in a box exactly. to see all these strange people <laughs> so Simon I've got um just to finish off I've got qu- two quick fire questions for you yeah firstly who is your who would you say is your favorite non-conservative politician Ooh, uh I think um Ben Lake the Plaid Cymru MP for Ceredigion is uh somebody who would uh be welcome in any political party. I think he's a decent, uh, honest uh, person who is a um, great deal younger than me. Uh, but I think he approaches. I think he, I, you know, he's in danger of giving politics a good name. Put it that way. Um, and uh, uh, but it doesn't compromise his views. Uh, he's perfectly, you know, he expresses them well. But he does so with with decency, and I think that's quite rare. Mm. 
what's the best advice you've ever been given that you'd like to pass on? Um, in, in relation to politics or life in general? In life, yeah. Uh, um, uh, Either. Oh, wow, I think... Um, uh, I mean, I only came into this job by a complete fluke. Uh, and I think it's, um, you know, be bold. No, don't, don't, you know, don't um, uh, miss out on an opportunity. And, uh, and you know, I, I think that, I think that's, uh, you've got to take the chances as they come. You know, the, the buses come around quite infrequently. And if you miss one, you don't know when the next one's coming. I think also another bit of political advice, which I've uh, abide by is, you know, um, it's sort of two things, and I think both the expressions come from one of the one or two of the sort of political programs we've talked about. One is that um, you know never say never in politics. You know, it just it, you just don't know what is around the corner, and the last year or two has been an example of that. You just don't know what you suddenly think you've hit a patch of calm water, <clears throat> and then suddenly you get a news alert on your phone, and uh, Dominic Cummings has resigned. You know, you think, shit, I didn't see that coming. Um, and uh, so that, and also, which was an old um, House of Cards saying, which is everything is connected to everything else. And literally every single decision we take, every person we meet, every conversation we have, there is always a connection with everything else. And so just because you might want to, you know, vote against the government on some, you know, on voter ID cards or something like that, um, actually, what you don't realize, what I didn't realize, what I've, I've learned the hard way, I think, as well, is that there was always, you know, everything is connected to everything. There was always something, some consequence to that, which you probably haven't quite said. So it's a case of really not burning bridges and keeping all of your options open. It's sort of stuff which annoys the public. It makes us rather sort of evasive when we're giving interviews and stuff like that because um, people, uh, uh, but it's because we've learned the hard way. But sometimes, sometimes being you know, when, when interviewers say oh, it's a yes, no question, it's not a yes, no question. There's no such thing as a yes, no question. Yeah. There's always but. And, and I suppose that's, um, that's been, an, that's been a, an important lesson in some respects. Simon, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed that, please leave a review and subscribe and tell your friends and family. And if you have any questions you want me to put to future guests or if you have special guest requests, do get in touch via Twitter. I'd love to hear from you. Until the next time. Bye. 